Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn over to Psalm 138. Thanksgiving's coming up this week, y'all. Did you know that? I'm just hoping this cold is gone in time that I can actually taste the deliciousness of the foods. It's on my mind a lot right now, as you can tell. I started my sermon that way. Uh, I did not plan to be preaching on a Thanksgiving psalm on the week before Thanksgiving, but here we are. I actually don't have enough foresight, I guess, to have thought to do that. That would have been a great idea, but in the providence of God, we are spending our last Sunday speaking about Thanksgiving psalms on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving psalms are one of the most common types of psalms throughout the psalms collection. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been trying to take a psalm a week ever since the summer and building up through the end of the year to try to learn from these psalms what it looks like to have a real relationship with God, to know Him like you know a friend to actually be able to talk to him and relate to him in a real way. The Psalms are, are, have, have always been among the favorite parts of the Bible for God's people from the time when they were first written. And, and one of the main reasons that's true is that they help us. They, 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 they're, they're so usable for us. And they help us uh, think through and, and move towards a healthy relationship with, with God. One of the things we've said is that they express the wide range of things we feel and experience in our lives and how to relate to God in our circumstances, whatever those might look like. So some of the psalms are lament psalms. That's a really popular one. Those psalms just complain to God about problems in your life. Those are important psalms because all of us have problems and God wants us to... Just because he knows doesn't mean he doesn't want us to come to him and be honest about what we feel and where we're struggling. And we've looked at our fair share of lament psalms through this series. But the Psalms capture not just any one type of thing we should bring to God, but the whole range of things we should bring to Him. So our relationship with God would be unhealthy. It would be imbalanced if all we ever did was complain to Him about the problems in our lives. Sometimes what we need to do is remind ourselves what He's given us in and for our problems. And that's what the Thanksgiving Psalms do. The Thanksgiving Psalms are the sequel to the Lament Psalms. If Lament Psalm cries out to God with a problem, a Thanksgiving Psalm is the follow-up. It tells God, thank you for hearing me when I cried out to you. Thanksgiving is how we acknowledge that God is active, that he actually does make a difference in our lives when we trust him. When we ask for his help, he hears us and he answers. So that means that Thanksgiving psalms are, and, and, and just practicing Thanksgiving in our lives is one way that we acknowledge that God has a history with us. That each day, each new day is not some sort of blank slate where he's got to prove himself to us over again as if he's never done anything for us. It's, Thanksgiving is how we recognize we have history with him. We know who we're dealing with. And we need that because we're so quick to forget it. Let me just give you a real-time example from my life. I don't have a whole lot of material, and so when the, when the iron is hot, I strike. I'm going to give you a real-time example of how I'm pressing in the importance of Thanksgiving psalms into my own life. Uh, so yesterday evening, <clears throat> while I was working on this very sermon, um, a tree fell on the back of our house. Did you guys experience that really big windstorm yesterday? It lasted like 20 minutes. It wasn't long, it wasn't long. Uh, but it was powerful. And so sitting there working, kids are playing back in their room, and all of a sudden, crash, this tree hits our house. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the first instinct is, is just to relieve that everybody's okay. You know, it was hurt, it damage was minor. 
Um, we actually got a lot of adventure out of it. It's probably the closest thing we're ever going to come to like a shipwreck situation on some sort of deserted island, you know, or huddled around our advent can- candle that we pulled out of, the, uh, out of storage and, and lit, playing Uno in the dark and to knock the power out. We actually had fun with it. But it didn't take me long. Once the relief of, of, of everybody being okay had passed, it didn't take me long to start... I could, I could tell in my heart I'm moving towards a kind of come on man moment, right? That I'm already, I'm thinking about the fact that I was already scheduled for a roof replacement, bought and paid for later this week with an insurance claim. And that this is going to mean two separate claims for a lot of overlapping work. I could feel myself pity creeping up. Then I could feel myself going to other repairs that have piled up in our house the last couple of years. If you own a home, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it just adds up. You can't control it. You're at the mercy of whatever happens to your house. So I could feel myself building this laundry list, thinking one thing after another. That's the story that was forming up in my mind, in my heart. I'm thinking, again? Seriously? But God quickly convicted me. I think in part because I was in this psalm. I was thinking about Thanksgiving. Not the holiday, the practice of God's people acknowledging what he's been for them in their lives. And thinking about this psalm, his word is sort of spreading through my heart. I could see the narrative start to shift. I had the story wrong, actually. It wasn't that we had one problem after the other. A, a better way to acknowledge what's happening there is that we've experienced one provision after another. Not one problem, but one provision. How long we prayed? Years that God would give us a a, a home that we could afford in our neighborhood. And he delivered. And then every time something's gone wrong in this house, every time, he's given us what we needed to fix it. He gave us a new HVAC, a new water heater, a new dishwasher. He's giving us new shingles and new boards for the roof. It's not one problem after another. It's one gift of God after another. That's the story. And that gives me what I need to trust him to deliver again. That's what the Thanksgiving Psalms are meant to do for us. To change the stories that we tell about what's happened. I don't think, friends, that is not stiff upper lip stoicism. Pretending like bad things aren't bad. And isn't Pollyanna-ish naivety. Head in the sand. Everything's great. Not wanting to be honest about what's hard in your life. It's not that. It's relational confidence. That's what it is. It's knowing that you can trust someone because they've been good to you. What what that is, is a heart and a mind shaped by the practice of thanksgiving, by this building thanksgiving into your life. And that kind of confidence is available to every single one of us. It's one of the reasons these thanksgiving psalms have been preserved over the years so that we could learn for ourselves to live with that kind of confidence. It's what these psalms are here to model and to enable. Thanksgiving psalms remind us of what we have to be grateful for. So that's looking back. And then by by helping us build these hearts of gratitude, they give us hope for what's still to come. Problems we can't imagine yet that will come, that God will give us everything we need to face. That's what Thanksgiving Psalms do. And and I want to just show you how this Psalm, quickly show you how this little Psalm does that work in your heart. If you found Psalm 138, I want to invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the the eight verses of, of this Thanksgiving Psalm of David. 
I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to pull three things out of this psalm this morning. Mainly just implications of a message that's really straightforward. I want you to see that this is a psalm that celebrates what I'm calling God's strange glory. Talks about his glory. Tells us what it, what's glorious about him. It is not what you expect. I want to make sure you see that come through. And then I want to talk about what it costs us to relate to a God who's glorious in this way. And why it's wonderful to relate to a God who's glorious in this way. First, I want to make sure you see the, the main content of the psalm here. One of the things you're always looking for in a thanksgiving psalm is the reason the psalmist is giving thanks. So a lot of them start out pretty much the same way, like this one does. First couple of verses are pretty standard in thanksgiving psalms. It's just, a, it's just him saying, I'm gonna give you thanks with my whole heart in front of all the other gods, with all these other options around me. I'm gonna thank you because you're the one who deserves it. And then he does it. So what you want to do if you want to really understand what one particular Thanksgiving psalm brings to the table that's different from other Thanksgiving psalms is skip down to where he starts explaining what he gives thanks for. This comes out in verse 2. And this, there's, there's a couple of stanzas, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 6, that both give thanks for basically the same true things about God. And I want you to see what those are. So look down at verse 2. He's going to give thanks to him for his name and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Why? For, now he explains it, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So he gives him thanks for being exalted above everything else, being higher than everything else. And then verse three brings another nuance to it. He gives him thanks because on the day that he called, God answered him and gave him the strength that he needed. So he's putting two things together that you wouldn't normally put together. God's exaltation, his godness, his being above every other power that you might look to in this earth, anywhere throughout the whole universe. God is exalted above all things. He's putting that together with God hearing the voice of just one of his people who cries out to him, hearing and actually answering him and helping him. So God is high, but he's also low. The God who is high also draws near. You see that? Now, now skip to the next stanza. Same theme comes out there. 
So now he switches from his own thanksgiving, looking ahead to a day when all the kings of the earth are going to give thanks. The powers that be are going to stop blowing their own horns, bringing attention to themselves, and they're going to divert all that attention to where it belongs, to God and his goodness. They're going to sing songs of his ways, the psalmist says. Why? Verse 5. Great is the glory of the Lord. But what's glorious about him? Glory just means his fame, his reputation, the greatness of the Lord. But but what is that? What's great about him? Oh, verse 6 is the key. Why will they sing of the ways of the Lord? Why will everyone give thanks to him? Well, here's why. For though the Lord is high, back to that exaltation again, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Same combination. What we're meant to see here is that God's glory is strange. It's unexpected. It's not like the glory of men. What sets God apart from all others, what exalts his name and his word high above anything else you might look to, what makes him high is the fact that even though his power is absolute and unmatched and uncontested, he pays attention to the weak, to the low, to anybody who's desperate enough to call out to him. Now, when we think about power, when we think about somebody who's climbed to the top of the ladder, whatever their field might be, I think one of the things we normally think about them is that the fact that they're so high means they don't have to get their hands dirty. It's one of the perks of being up high is that you got a lot of other people down here to handle the stuff you don't want to touch. So by the time you're running some sort of Fortune 500 company, you're not making your own copies anymore. You're probably not opening your own car door, much less driving yourself anywhere. You're not grading papers. You're not even writing your own speeches if you're, or your own addresses to, to whatever gatherings you go to. Like the, the, you've got somebody to do all that grunt work that you don't want to do for yourself. That's the perks of being high. If you ever do something, do a favor, do a solid for somebody, help them out in their situation, chances are it's because they're the person that had connections. All right? Somebody that, that you knew you might need something from sometime. One Fortune 500 CEO to another one, you know, giving their, you know, their cousin or their kid or their nephew or whatever a job. You, you might do that because you're sort of investing in a bank that might pay out to you later. Now, th- I think that's what we, we would assume about somebody who's reached the top like that. And maybe you felt what it is to come with your needs to somebody above you, but feel like you're a nuisance, like your concerns don't deserve their attention. Maybe you can even accept it because it makes sense. You don't have anything to offer them. We think that one of the benefits of being at the top of the ladder is being above the place where you have to get your hands dirty, but God's not like that. His glory is great. And where his glory shows up is clear. Though the Lord is high, exalted above all things, God and God alone he pays attention to, he regards, he notices and hears and loves the lowly. Rather than doing favors for the high and mighty who might give him some sort of help someday, he actually keeps his distance from the powers that be. From the haughty, he knows them only from afar. He's close to the low. What you need to know this morning, friend, if you've come here as someone who's not yet a Christian 
or maybe you've been away from God for a long time and you're wondering if maybe God does have something to offer you and what you're facing in your life, what you need to know is that closeness to God, having him near to you, having his help, having him listen to you when you call out to him, that's never something you have to accomplish. That's not something that you've got to prove. There's no status that you have to reach. There is no ladder you have to climb on your own to get up to him where he can hear you. It's not some sort of skill that you have to learn as if, as if you just like practice it enough times until you get good at it and then you can talk to him in a way that he'll hear and listen to. Anytime God is close to anyone, it happens in one way and in only one way. When God is close, it's because he has come down low to you. It's always a gift. It's always about grace, not what you deserve. The only thing you have to do is accept the fact that the gap between you and God, if he seems distant from you, if he seems like he's not for you in what you're facing, the gap between you and God is one that you can never bridge on your own. You have to accept the fact that your only hope is him coming to you, him coming the full distance, him bringing himself close. And that's exactly what Jesus represents. The gospel tells us that in Jesus, God himself became a human. He lived in a body just like ours. He faced the same kind of problems we did and even more. He even, he even went to the cross and died a death that we're supposed to die because of our sin so that he could come down low to those stuck in their sin and offer them a hand up. Not a hand that they have to reach out and grab, a hand that reaches down into the pit and grabs them and pulls them up by his own power. That Jesus is living now because he did not stay dead but rose and he offers you hope and freedom if you'll trust in him. Though he is high now, seated next to God's right hand, though he is in heaven far above all things that might threaten him down here, he draws near to the lowly when they call out to him. Will you call out to him today? If you will, if you'll try him, you'll find out what this psalmist did, that he always hears, he always responds. And he will rewrite the story of your life. That's God's strange glory. Though he is high, he regards the lowly. There is none like him. Now, what I want to finish with here is a couple implications of that truth. I want you to see what this costs us if we embrace it and why it's so wonderful. What it costs us is pretty straightforward. At the heart of this song, the idea at the heart of it, which comes through in verse 6 that God is exalted above everybody, above everything, and that he's also near to the lowly, that he's high and low at the same time. That idea is both a promise to us, like we've just said, and a challenge. There's actually a challenge built into it. Did you see that come out in verse six? Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, verse six says, but it also says the haughty he knows from afar. There's a warning there to us. If we try to put ourselves on his level, that is a stiff farm to his involvement in our lives. That is us saying we'd rather be him than have his help. Here's the key. The God who is high above us is also close to us, for us, hearing, responding. But the God who is close to us is also high above us. He is for us, yes, but
but he is not subject to us. He does not do our bidding. He is not our butler. He is not a subcontractor to our contractor role. He does not carry out our plans, our visions of what will be best for our lives. He is high. He is exalted above all things. His ways are not ours. His thoughts are not ours. So if we want his help, it comes at the cost of our desire to hold on to our vision of what's best for us. There's no escaping that cost, friends. We gotta get out of the seat of the haughty that would try to bridge the gap between us and God by coming up to him and giving him memos for how we'd like to see him use his strength. And we've got to accept that we just have to give everything over to him to enjoy his presence and power in our lives. Now, I don't want you to mishear me here. That doesn't mean that we don't just come to him straight up with whatever it is that we need and want. I don't believe the Bible ever teaches us to filter what we ask of God any more than a child would filter what he brings to his father or his mother. A child just comes. That's his only instinct. That's her only move. And they do it. And that honors their parents when they do it. And we're supposed to honor God that way. But we've got to come to him with what we want, holding what we want with open hands, acknowledging that he might know something we don't about what's best for us. And that trusting him might mean accepting that his view of our future isn't our view. One person put it, if we, if we only ever come to God, if we're only ever going to relate to him in a way that's thankful, that's, that's, that, that, that affirms him and honors him when what he brings into our life is what we want brought into our lives. And what we have is not so much obedience or trust, but just simple agreement. So a child that only comes to his father or his mother, only does what they tell him to do, only accepts the path that the parent has set for his life, when it seems right to him, is not a child who obeys or trusts the parent. It's a child that agrees that the parent got it right this time. God wants more than just agreement with us. He wants our hearts to trust him. So if we're going to know his power and presence in our life, we've got to get out of the seat of the haughty and accept that we are not him. We have to, to be able to affirm and enjoy his lowness, if you will. We have to keep on affirming and worshiping his highness. Now, that's what it costs us to enjoy God's closeness and presence in our lives. But the main image I want to leave you with this morning from the very end of this psalm is why this is so wonderful for us. Yes, there's cost here. It isn't easy to accept that his ways aren't ours, especially in times of trouble, which the psalms address over and over again. There's nothing but realism in the psalms. They do not act like things are better than what they are. They don't ask anybody to pretend that things aren't hard sometimes. They're, they're, They're full of trouble. And it's especially in those times of trouble that it's hard to accept that God's ways aren't ours. Hard not to resent the fact that God has chosen things we wouldn't have. But friends, what this psalm is pointing us to, that this Thanksgiving psalm is trying to help us learn and build into our lives as a practice, is is an awareness that it is especially in times of trouble that we need a God who is not one of us, who is not on our level, not limited the way we are, whose power doesn't run out like ours does, whose vision of the future isn't blinded in the way that ours is, a God who sees everything, even what we don't, and always knows what's best, even when we don't. That it's especially in times of trouble when we need to know that we have a God who is high, exalted 
above all others, qualified in a way that we aren't to govern our lives. Remember, these Thanksgiving psalms are not just about the past. They aren't, they're not just about remembering that God was for him in a certain time. They're also about the future. They're about leveraging this confidence that God has built in from the past, from when he was good to his people, and about using it to fuel hope for the future. So the psalmist here is talking himself up for the trouble that he's in. He's using thanks. He's deploying thanksgiving for the past to fight the fight of faith in his present and for his future. These Thanksgiving Psalms are meant to help God's people live like they have history with a God who's for them, a God who has been good and will be good. So look at verses 7 and 8. This is where he ends. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, he says, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He's talking back to himself here. He's just recounted time when God heard him, when God proved in his own life, he saw God show up as somebody who was high, but also low, who is exalted above all things, but who listens to those who need him. And now he's reminding himself above it because he's in trouble. And he knows he can't preserve his own life. And he knows his enemies are too strong for him to fight them. And he knows that his purposes for his life, whatever they might be, are too big for him to accomplish them on his own. He knows that, and so he's reminding himself of who he's dealing with. So here's what we've said so far. If we're gonna come and enjoy the the God who shows up in the life of the desperate, the God who is God above all others, but uses his power for the desperately needy, what we lose is, is the right to be the architects of our lives. We've got to give that position over to the one who is high and exalted above all. We lose the project manager status that we like to hold on to. We are not the engineers that plan and execute everything that we we want for ourselves. That's out the window if you want to be close to this God. That must go. He knows the haughty from afar. But what we gain... Friends, this, this boggles the imagination if you really think about it. What we lose is this project manager status. What we gain is a status as the pet project of a master builder. He has purposes for me. Verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for, for me. Think about it. Of course, the, the, the Bible does talk sometimes about big purposes that God has, same purpose for all people who are in Christ. He's working us over to the image of Jesus. He's bringing us to heaven where we'll all be together to worship him forever. That purpose is the same for every one of his people. But the psalmist has got something even more specific in mind here. He's pointing us to the fact that God actually has a template for you that he's paying attention to, to your life now, in time, in history, a life that matters to him. He regards you. Think of what this means, if what the Bible says is true. Take a minute this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 40. 
It reads like a resume of God's accomplishments, his qualifications, the reasons that you would want to bring him into your life. Here's some of the things that Isaiah 40 says about this God. He measures the waters in his hand. The majority of the earth's surface covered in water to God. He cups it like you like might pull up a little bit of water out of a stream to take a little drink on a hike. That's the waters of the earth. He measures them that way. He marks off the heavens with a ruler. A few things seem bigger to us, at least when we're out in a place where we can see it well, than the expanse of the sky, which stretches on as far as the eye can see. To him, he, 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 takes, his, he takes his little ruler and he measures them. He takes his thumb and his pinky finger spreads them out. That's how big they are to him. Isaiah 40 says he tosses the mountains, heaviest things in our experience, up on a scale to weigh them. Tells us he's counseled by nobody. He's got wisdom and understanding in, his, in himself just because he's God. He doesn't need to learn things the hard way. He doesn't, he doesn't gain knowledge from experience. He doesn't have to talk to people who are in the know or the experts. He just has it. He's counseled by nobody. The nations, Psalm 40 points us to, the nations that so captivate us with either fear of them or worship of them, those nations that can loom so large in our minds and in our hearts, well, to God, they're like a drop from a bucket, Isaiah says. They're like dust on the scale. They don't even register. They're emptiness, nothingness to him. Their kings are like grasshoppers, Isaiah says. And finally, he says, look up at the dark night sky. Go out when it's real pitch black. Stare straight up at the sky. What do you see there? What you see are beams of light, too many to number. But to God, well, he created all of them. He brings them out by number, calls roll, knows their names. No one of them is missing. This God, high, exalted, maker of every person who has ever lived, giver of every individual breath ever breathed by every person who has ever lived. This God regards me. He pays attention to me. He knows my name. Not just my name. He knows my thoughts and my feelings. He knows my dreams and my disappointments. The Bible says that every one of my tears is marked down in his book, noted down, accounted for, so he can wipe them away. And he know, not only knows who I am, he not only knows what I'm facing, he's not only a spectator to my life, he has a purpose for me, a purpose designed by him for my good, and he is working it out right now. He has a project designed for my life, not on some sort of assembly line, mass produced, but crafted by an artisan, unique and perfect. I want to ask you this morning, what is your relationship to this strangely glorious God? Are you not a Christian yet this morning? Friend, if you're not then I want to just go ahead and acknowledge the fact that what the Bible says about God 
if it's true, if the God described here in Isaiah 40 and all throughout the Bible really does exist, we have absolutely no reason to expect that he would pay a moment's attention to us whatsoever. I hope, what you, I hope you don't hear this morning some sort of elevated self-importance in us thinking, isn't it great that the whole world revolves around us, including the God who made it? That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible is astounded by the fact, consistently astounded by the fact that the God who is God alone, who has created everything that is, actually does pay attention to each individual life of those that he made. There is no reason you should believe that true. That's true unless, unless the Bible speaks truly. The Bible's message is the only reason to believe that it's true. It's too crazy for anybody to make up. Though the Lord is high, the Bible tells us, he regards as a lowly. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, he preserves my life. He will fulfill his purpose for me no matter the best attempts of those who stand against me. The Bible tells you that is as certain and secure as God's name and his word are exalted above all things. And my appeal to you this morning, if you're not a Christian yet, is to try him. Try him. It's the only way to know that this is for real. It should not be true. The Bible says that it is. This psalmist says, I've been there. It's true. And there are people sitting all around you right now who could tell you the same stories. Try them. Have you been delivered this morning? Is that you? Have you known something of what this psalmist sings? Then give thanks for God's glory today. Give thanks for the times that he has intervened in your life, even if it wasn't what you wanted for yourself. And please, friends, tell somebody else about it. (coughs) Excuse me. Let them know, like the psalmist does here, that God was for you when you didn't think he was, that you know now what you didn't then, that he's trustworthy for anyone who will put their faith in him. Tell them. They need to hear it. Are you in trouble this morning? Like the psalmist was. Is that where you are? If that's where you are, then I want to encourage you to follow the lead of this man. To do what he did and remind the God who hears you that everything depends on his power to intervene in your life. Remind that God that you have nothing on your own, that you are done trying to provide for yourself, that if this God doesn't preserve your life, your life is lost. That if this God doesn't stand against what stands against you, you will fall. That if this God doesn't have purposes for you that he's working to fulfill, your life has no point. Walk through this psalm and pray it to him in your trouble. Ask him what the psalmist does at the very beginning. God, please do not forsake the work of your hands. Do not forsake it. If you forsake me, I'm lost. Don't forsake the work of your hands. Pray this as a prayer to God. It's here for you to do just that. Deliverance is not a one-time thing that you experience and then never need again. This guy is betting his whole future on what he's learned about God from his past. And he's inviting you to do that too. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith that this man knew. Despite what we see and know, despite the trouble that comes to our lives in ways that are large and small, we, we pray for the faith to believe that we have no other hope but you, to give up the haughty place that knows best, 
and then to trust that you can deliver for us according to your purposes. Give us this faith by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.